This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Marjorie Engel discusses her new book, Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. Then PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino introduces the top small press books for fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And here to join me is PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hello, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Hi. Thank you so much for coming to keep me company. It's very nice to have you here. Um, not a lot going on on the bestseller list this week. Definitely not. Very slow week at the uh, end of summer here. Yeah. But uh, you know, now it's September. Ideally, those big fall books will start coming in. In the meantime, our first uh, new book on the hardcover fiction list is all the way down at number 10. It's Surrender New York by Caleb Carr, uh, who's been around a long time. I didn't know he was still writing. Our review says it's an ambitious modern day crime novel that starts off strong but loses its way. It's about a psychologist and a DNA evidence expert who have been uh, kicked out of New York City after they did a little too much to discredit some official crime labs. And uh, so naturally, they start investigating problems on their own. Uh, we say that it's uh, not as good as Carr's earlier historical mysteries, The Alienist and The Angel of Darkness. And uh, fans should be prepared for some heavy foreshadowing and ponderous prose. So that's down at number 10. A little bit below that at number 16 is First Star I See Tonight by Susan Elizabeth Phillips. We gave this a starred review. It was one of my big books for summer. Uh, she's a very popular author, always a bestseller. And uh, here she continues her popular contemporary Chicago Stars series with an utterly delightful standalone gamble that pairs up a recently retired football quarterback and a private detective. She's trying to save him from himself. He is not interested in this whatsoever. <laughs> uh, hilarity ensues. And uh, we say that, as usual, Phillips's Chicago landscape is dotted with plenty of interesting local scenery, plus juicy details of high-end clothing, accessories, and decor. So for those who are into learning how the, the other half lives, uh, this this will either give you a sense of it or just let you kind of salivate over <laughs> the sports cars and fancy jewelry. Uh, Phillips has a knack for nuance and stage setting that grounds her characters and makes them feel perfectly real. And fans and newcomers alike are certain to fall in love with this delightful pair as they scrimmage and score. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. So that's, uh, that's down at number 16. And definitely one to look out for if you're a contemporary romance fan. And at number 20, we have The Couple Next Door by Shari Lapena. Uh, this is uh, her debut novel, and we call it suspenseful and heart-wrenching. Uh, it's set in upstate New York and opens with uh, parents coming home from a party at their neighbor's house to find their front door open and their infant child's crib empty. 
Yikes. Left her alone after the sitter canceled at the last minute, but there's no evidence that anyone entered the house. So what happened? Where's the baby? Who took her? Could the couple be covering up their own kidnapping of their own child somehow? So uh, the tension grows as the united front of the parents begins to crumble, and after numerous twists and turns, just when everything appears to be resolved, Lapena delivers one final deftly crafted surprise. So this sounds pretty intense. As the parent of a baby myself, I think I might not pick it up. Uh, but if uh, if that's a topic that you can stomach, then uh, definitely sounds like a book to watch out for. And that's pretty much what's going on. How about over in nonfiction? Well, in nonfiction, we have uh, the presidential election to thank for many of the books this summer, including two this week about Donald Trump. At number three, we have In Trump We Trust by Ann Coulter. Uh, I could probably pretty much end there. You know what it's about. Um, my favorite part of this book is the subtitle E Pluribus Awesome, <laughs> uh, which I believe would translate to Out of Many Awesome. Okay. Uh, so that's... You know, she's enthusiastic for sure. Um, the press materials say Donald Trump isn't a politician. He's a one-man wrecking ball against our dysfunctional and corrupt establishment. Uh, so at number three, people are clearly snapping that one up. At number seven, there's a book that's somewhat different in tone. It's Trump Revealed by Washington Post investigative reporter Michael Cranish and a senior editor at the paper Mark Fisher. And this book draws on the work of about two dozen post journalists, as well as 20 hours of interviews that the authors did themselves with Trump. Um, they include outtakes from those interviews on the back jacket. Uh, one of the quotes is, uh, you know, from Trump himself. He says, if you do a negative book on me, watch. It won't sell. It's probably going to be a negative book, but what the hell? <laughs> So, uh, and here it is at number seven. And on here the it is at number list. seven. Uh, but he, he knew what he was getting in for, clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, just below that at number eight is The Perfect Horse by Elizabeth Letts. Uh, and this is about a rescue mission to save uh, some priceless stallions during World War II that were kidnapped by the Nazis. Apparently, Hitler wanted to create a master race of not just people, but also of horses. Wow. Yeah. Kind of a bad guy, right? Um, a little bit. <laughs> So, uh, and uh, this is not actually Letts' first book about a horse. She's a lifelong equestrian herself, and she's also the author of 2011's The $80 Champion, Snowman, The Horse That Inspired a Nation. And that book uh, sold about 58,000 copies in hardcover and another 156,000 copies in trade paper. So that was a big hit for her. Then the last new book this week on the list is number 13, A Memoir, A Little Thing Called Life by Linda Thompson, who is a former beauty pageant winner, or I guess she's still a, the winner. She's a former contestant, uh, a singer-songwriter, um, but she's probably better known for having a long-term relationship with Elvis Presley in the 1970s, followed by uh, her marriage to Caitlyn Jenner in the 80s. They have two sons together. So I think she's probably talking a lot about the relationships and perhaps less about the beauty pageants in this book. But definitely one for those people who are interested in celebrity gossip. Exactly. Uh, then the other books I wanted to talk about are a couple of movie tie-ins. You know, these can be really big business yeah, for definitely. books that are both doing well and sometimes not so well. Uh, in this case, we've got a new mass market and trade paperback of a book that certainly is doing well, The Girl on the Train. Um, the... Trade paper 
movie tie-in is number five on that list. Um, the mass market tie-in is number one. And that book will be out October 7th. So people still have time to gear up and read it if there are people who haven't read it yet, which I find hard to believe. Um, the book this week alone sold 74,000 print copies. That's wow. the two tie-ins plus the conventional trade paper, which is still selling. Um, and the movie's not out for another month. movie's not out for another month. Then the other movie tie-in we have is for a movie opening today called The Light Between Oceans by M.L. Stedman. This is a book that actually published in 2012. Um, it was Stedman's first novel, and as far as I can tell, her only novel to date. Um, it sold quite well, 90,000 copies in hardcover and another uh, more than 400,000 copies in trade paper. So this week, her uh, tie-in, the tie-in to the movie debuts at number seven in mass market and number nine in trade paper. So still selling well. Um, it sold about 22,000 print units this week total. So it's so interesting to me that people buy these movie tie-in books um, because it never occurred to me to read the book so close to the movie or in preparation for seeing the movie. It's That's just an approach that I didn't know people took, but apparently thousands and thousands of them do. I think so, yeah. And I mean, I know I have actually tried to crash in reading a book before a movie. Um, I did that with Lord of the Rings, which is kind of a hard one oh to goodness. crash. Yeah. And then I never did see the movie, actually. So, um, But anyway, I think, you know, they, they do prove popular and some of the covers are, are actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. It's always great to have you here, and uh, yeah, hopefully things will start getting a little more exciting on the bestseller list as we move into the heart of fall. I think they will. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Marjorie Ingle tells us how to teach your children to be menches. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Marjorie Ingle on the line. Her new book is Mamala Knows Best, What Jewish Mothers Do to Raise Successful, Creative, Empathetic, Independent Children. Hi, Marjorie. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, Rose. Thanks for asking me. So successful, creative, empathetic, independent. Why those four adjectives? What made those the, the priorities? Well, because I couldn't just say nice, 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 nice. Um, you know, for, uh, for me, part of, uh, I think we're stressing accomplishment too much that accomplishment one hopes comes from, uh, you know, raising kids who are kind and empathetic and that you don't have to drive like a flock of sheep to do things. Um, and who are creative thinkers, because creativity, I think, is essential in a world that changes as fast as ours does. So I'm worried. Basically, this was a response to saying we have to raise kids who do well on tests. Uh-huh. I see. So um, you're moving away from that whole fill in the bubbles correctly idea into a, a more uh, flexible approach to a changing world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because filling in the bubbles, I think there are two problems with that. One is that tells you what the answer is right now, but not what the answer is in the future. And two, I think that when we teach our kids that their worth comes from bubble filling, we end up, um, you know, pushing them to cheat because that's the only way they see their own validity is doing the best on this test. And it sets them up against one another rather than being collaborative type of people, which I think collaboration is going to be essential as we move into, again, more and more complicated worlds. And 
um, I think it makes them into jerks, <laughs> basically. And um, you talk about uh, the importance of distrusting authority and learning to argue. So when parents are coming at this from a more disciplinarian perspective, how do you sell them on that? How do you show them that that's an advantage for kids and for parents? Um, I think one reason the Jews have been so successful in so many different time periods throughout history and both in eras and places where Jews were fairly acculturated and fairly, you know, welcome in the mainstream culture and also in places where they face terrible anti-Semitism is because Jews have never been unquestioningly accepting of authority. Uh, accepting authority has not worked well for the Jews over time. And that doesn't mean being disrespectful. It doesn't mean being rude, but it does mean thinking, uh, what are other people's agendas? What do other people want? And um, not being a tremendous people pleaser, which can be a problem, I think, particularly for women. So maybe, you know, that was something that was in the back of my head as I was writing. Um, but you're never going to break paradigms. You're never going to create new ways of thinking. You're never going to be a scientific innovator if all you're doing is trying to replicate what came before and trying to get, you know, uh, the pleasing answer as opposed to the right answer. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book is um, a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Isidore Isaac Rabi said that what made him a scientist was his mother saying to him when he was a little boy growing up you know, in on the Lower East Side, not with no money, with parents who barely spoke English. He said other people's mothers asked them, um, what did you learn today? And my mother asked me, did you ask a good question today? And that's what made me a scientist. That's such um, a Jewish one, story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if there's one story that encapsulates the book, I think it's that. That's that's an amazing story because um, that's so true to my experience also uh, growing up Jewish is, is that that was absolutely... That was absolutely the approach. And also, did you argue yeah. well today? Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you go to the bathroom? <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you eat your lunch? <laughs> right. So um, you also talk about raising children to be menches. What, is, what does it mean to be a mensch? That's, that's been a, a pretty flexible term over the years. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, mensch literally means a man in German, um, but in Yiddish usage, a mensch is a good human being. Um, a mensch is someone who stands up for other people, who speaks up against injustice, um, who, when other people won't speak up, speaks up. Um, and I think that is ultimately what all of us should want from our children, particularly, you know, watching this election cycle with so much mm. meanness and cruelness. Um, you know, we want it is, you know, I wish I hadn't said nice in the beginning of this interview because nice is this sort of Minnesota word that has, you know, no uh, spine to it. Uh, kind may be a better word, mm. um, but that's what, that's what we need our kids to be. That's what we need our world to be. And um, you say there's uh, to to make this uh, a commandment at first, not a request that you, you don't say, please say please. You say you say please and thank you every time. Uh, yeah, so you withhold the snack until you get the please and the thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kids, uh, you know, we all have to learn. Nobody is born knowing how to do everything. Um, so, you know, in the beginning, you make you have the kid exercise the muscle by urging them to exercise the muscle. And then you stop praising them for doing what the hell they're supposed to do. 
You know, you don't you don't get a cookie repeatedly when you are, just act like a basic human being. That makes a lot of sense. So um, yes. you also say uh, religion is a team sport in which spirituality is just one play. So how how do religion and spirituality intersect with this in addition to concepts of Jewish culture? That's a great question. Um, you know, I uh, I don't consider myself a very religious person. I consider myself a pretty well-read person, and I consider myself you know, very attached to Jewish culture and tradition and history. Um, but, you know, I don't keep Shabbat. Um, I don't go to shul every, I don't go to synagogue every weekend. Um, but I think so much of what has driven um, identification with Judaism over time is the social justice aspect of Judaism. Um you know, back again, when people didn't really take care of Jews and Jews were coming to America in big numbers, Jews were setting up and, and in the old country too, Jews set up their own burial societies, their own loan societies, their own charitable organizations. You know, it's not only about you and God, it's also about you and humanity. And indeed, when you look at the Ten Commandments, some of the commandments are about God, but a lot of the Ten Commandments are how you treat other people. Um, so I'm wary of people who talk about spirituality as this solo pursuit, as like, yeah, I had this really, really good meditation session, and oh my God, I really felt in touch with my personhood. And it's like, that's great, but you know, a real source of spiritual identity should be being with others, being, you know, a, uh, a social animal. Uh, so you talk and, about uh, taking kids with you to, uh, to volunteer, to do good works. Uh, is that all part of the same thing? It totally is. Um, you know, one of the stories that I told in the book was when Josie, my older daughter, was two, I started having her go through old toys. Um, you know, I live in the East Village, which is a great place to live where you see all kinds of people just living all on top of one another. So we live across the street from a homeless shelter. And um, I had Josie start collecting old toys to bring to the shelter. And of course, like all children, even if she hadn't touched something in seven months, she's like, no, I can't. Uh, but I made her pack up stuff and I said, there are other children who don't have any toys and we're going to give them, you know, these toys and that'll make us both feel really good. And we brought the, um, the toys finally over to the homeless shelter and the guy who answered the door was so sweet. Um, and Josie actually, I think got that, okay, this was a good thing that we did, but then he came back and he chased us down the block and he gave Josie a present, which was a giant, giant bucket of markers. And she was not allowed to have markers because she was two and she would write on the wall. <laughs> so I'm like, this is not the takeaway I want you to have from this doing of a good deed, my darling. Uh, but, you know, gradually both kids figured out that you do nice things without expecting to be rewarded for them. So how else do you recommend getting kids involved in, in volunteering? Because I, I think young children sort of start out very self-focused. They barely even understand that other people are people. So how do you right. bring them from that to you do a good deed uh, without any expectation of reward just for the warm fuzzies? Right. That's a great question. And yeah, I mean, it's it's developmentally appropriate and normal for your kid at first not to realize that there are other human beings in the world. That's, you know, how it's supposed to work. But, um, I, you know, I don't think you have to do these incredibly, you know, virtuous, halo-wearing, noble things with your kids. If you just teach your kids, if two of your friends are fighting and you can distract them 
and make them not be fighting anymore. That's a good deed. If you can, you know, if you see that uh, someone at the birthday party is away from the table for a minute, save them a piece of cake so they make sure that they get they get a piece of cake. Um, you know, if uh, you know if we're at a family reunion, uh, go talk to old people. I know it's hard, but just go over and say hi and be sweet. Um, and then there are also the, you know, the standing up to bullies thing, which I think is so hard for kids to do, especially when the person who's doing the bullying is your friend. Mm. Um, I think that's a lesson that we can all and all, we all should be teaching our kids really early on. Um, I think there are all kinds of ways to do good deeds. And I think the problem is when we get caught up in thinking it means that we have to send, you know, our kid to go do something in Guatemala so they can do it for a college essay. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about a, a way of life that permeates the way you go about, you know, your day-to-day business. Teaching kids about bystander intervention is so interesting. I never hear anyone talk about this. I hear people talking about what you do if you're bullied. And I hear people talk to parents about what to do if your kid is the bully. But you've got this third person there, which is the bully's friend. And that's so interesting. That's such a complicating factor. And it's so accurate to the way the world is. This bullying doesn't happen in in the middle of nowhere with no one else around. Right. And I think that we've all noticed that once one person starts to say, hey, no, other people start joining in. You just need that one person to take Mm -hmm. that brave leap to start. Um, And I don't know. And I I realize it's so hard when it's your friend. But I also think that one way of putting what that when we talk about it that way, when the bully is your friend, I think that also helps everyone. And that makes us realize that bullies are our friends, that we're, that I, I worry that sometimes we other bullies too much and we say, you know, like, these are evil people. We have a zero tolerance policy. And like, no, you know, your kid can bully. I, I you know, I I was, I, I bet you were too. I was bullied and I can think of times when I was a bully. Mm-hmm. So I think it's much more nuanced than the portrayal that we have of like, you know, the innocent victim and the evil you know, the evildoer, the, the Draco Malfoy. Right. Um, who who so, even gets yeah. a little bit of redemption in the end. Yes. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do remember reading somewhere that uh, J.K. Rowling was really upset that uh, girls uh, were fantasizing about Draco, that she's like, he is a bad boyfriend. He would be a bad boyfriend. Like, he would be a bad boy. He would be a bad boyfriend, <laughs> but you know, there's uh, danger is always seductive. Yeah, we've always liked the bad boys. So. I mean, he looked look, he looked like a spike on Buffy. Right. So you know, so you've you've got to you you have to prepare your kids for that and not just sort of let it yes. happen to them. Right. And I mean, I think that actually, you know, if I'm going to bring it back around to the book, you know, the chapter about um, being, uh, you know, wary of authority, um, I think that that actually might be a good skill in being to tell, being able to tell when a guy is, you know, a sort of twinkly eyed troublemaker as opposed to like an actual schmuck. Can I say schmuck? <laughs> sure. I don't think I don't Yay. think the FCC uh, you know, really cares too much about Yiddish. Okay, good. <laughs> so you use uh, archery as a and as a metaphor for sin and vice versa. So tell us tell us a little bit about the connection there, the linguistic connection. 
Okay, so the word chet in Hebrew, which is usually translated as sin, actually means literally missing the mark. And I think that's a great way to think about when you screw up, because sin, I mean, that's a, I mean, even the word is terrifying with that initial sibilant S and that one, you know, syllable. And it just sounds so um, fatal and unrecoverable from and awful. Whereas missing the mark, I think that immediately makes you think, I could shoot again. I could try harder. I could, I could get it right the next time. And I think that's a great way. I mean, uh, I am the queen of going into a shame spiral when I think I've screwed up and like I will go down a hole forever. Um, but I think if you, if I were able to translate that in my own head as simply missing the mark, um, that would be a lot healthier. Um, because, uh, and, um, yeah, I think we should all think about, and I, I think this ties back into the whole thing about, othering bullies um you know no you screwed up you are always redeemable mm. that's a that's a very important concept yeah i think so um you know you also i feel like shame is also um you know uh despite the stereotype of the jewish mother you know being this person who wants everyone else to wallow in guilt um i'm not sure that shame is uh you know momentarily it it definitely has its purpose but when you end up wallowing, that ends up, A, being the sort of narcissistic, you know, way of avoiding having to fix what you screwed up. Um, and B, it just, it feels too hopeless, you know, and there's, you know, hopelessness is not a helpful, uh, a helpful feeling. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Marjorie Ingle, author of Mamala Knows Best. Uh, so you have experience with reform, conservative, and orthodox Judaism. And uh, how do you address parents from all of those groups? And how do you write a book about Jewish parenting in general when those approaches can be so different? That is a great question. And we're trying to make this uh, book appeal to people with no Jewish background whatsoever. That's and the next question. <laughs> so, oh, okay. I'll wait for that one then. Um, you know, I do, you know, if I can be totally honest with you, I worry that some uh, people with uh, an Orthodox yeshiva background will leaf through this book and go, I know all of these stories already. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe people with who aren't Jews at all will go, this is just way too Jewish for me. But, you know, I was a folklore and mythology major in college, and I just think everybody's traditions are fascinating. Um, so whether you're looking at this uh, as an insider or as an outsider, um, I think there's always something you can learn from other people's stories and rituals and traditions. Um, also, I'm not really all that interested in theology. The book is mostly about uh, texts and history and culture and pop culture and high culture um, throughout uh, different time periods and um, different settings. Uh, so I don't think, you know, uh, for me, 
the God stuff has never been the center of my Jewish identity, and I don't think that it should have to for anybody to profit from reading the book. So how do you make a coherent narrative out of all of those different ingredients? That must have been a real struggle. I have to give a huge shout out to uh, my editor, Heather Jackson, um, who is not Jewish, um, who I had been under the impression as a, you know, since I, I, uh, I've done a, a quite a bit of ghostwriting, I really believed when people said editors don't edit. And she was just a ruthless taskmaster. Uh, she, uh, absolutely cracked the whip. I ended up cutting 20,000 words in the second draft. Um, and I think, uh, we ended up mostly due to her, uh, doing a really good job, um, creating something that's definitely bouncy and bounces around, but that's all, I think that's also kind of part of if I may say so, part of its charm, um, that hopefully it's funny as well, which, uh, you know, gives you a little bit of leeway in terms of making it relevant to a whole lot of different kinds of people. So comparisons with Amy Chua of Tiger Mother fame and Pamela Drucker of Bringing Up Bebe are uh, kind of inevitable. I think, in fact, I think I saw at least one review that did that. Um, I saw two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, when I when I told my husband I was interviewing you and what your book was about, he said, oh, you know, she and the, the Tiger Mom woman should have a mom off. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, I really enjoyed the Tiger Mom book which had nothing to do with the way it was marketed. Right. It's not a book of child rearing. It's a very self-deprecating memoir about the way she was so draconian in raising her kids. And with one kid, it did indeed lead to Carnegie Hall. And the other kid pushed back so hard and was so uh, furious at the way at her mother's child rearing strategy that finally her husband, a Jew, by the way, said to her, you know, look, you've got to back off if you want to have a relationship with this child. And so I thought that the book ultimately was this very sort of funny, I tried to be such a hard ass, and it ended up not being great for both of my kids. She had a 50-50 success rate with that. Um, And I thought, you know, I thought that it was very dryly funny, but it's not a parenting manual. And, um, you know, bringing up Bebe, I thought was an interesting look at, it was more about sort of French culture than it was almost about child rearing. And I, I just can't really imagine any American parent, um, let alone, you know, a Jewish parent being sort of so blithely. I think sometimes you do have to intervene in your kid's life mm-hmm. or at least and at least show. I think one thing that has worked well for the Jews is showing interest in your kid's life. We don't try to force them to be doctors and lawyers historically, but you figure out what your kid is interested in, what your kid is good at. And then like, you're like, let me give you whatever support I can to push you in that direction and to help you do your best at it, explore and push yourself. Um, but you know, a, I'm not going to be the one who's pushing you and B I'm not going to do the, the whole French benign neglect thing. Right. So how's that for an answer? <laughs> some some somewhere somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. Or maybe yeah. often it's in its own third direction. You're you're sort of complicating the yeah. story again. I mean, I feel like when a lot of where the book ended up being is if you want to raise a mensch, you kind of have to be a mensch. So a lot of it turned into this kind of, you know, I am assuming a female reader. Um and I think a lot of it turned out to be this sort of cheerleading about, you know, 
you can be just a, you know, a good enough mother is completely good enough. It's better than good enough. And you deserve to have a life and you deserve not to be incredibly stressed out and worried that other people are going to be judging your parenting because guess what they are, um, that you should have a whole life and a world and intellectual and emotional life outside of your kids. And, uh, you know, and you should be modeling the kind of behavior, you know, be the change you want to see in the world as a non-Jew once said. Um, so I think a lot of it ended up being about wanting, uh, women who are so frequently told that they're, um, not living up to some impossible standard. Um, I kind of wanted to be a little bit of a cheerleader and a new go girl. I know among uh, the parents I know, we talk a lot about parent, the kid you have, uh, so not taking any philosophy wholesale, but you know, understanding that you have to base your parenting around your kid, but you also have to parent as the parent you are. I love that. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, we are, we all are who we are and say, you know, uh, don't be, you know, when you tell somebody who's trying to get pregnant, Oh, just relax and it'll happen. You tell someone who is nervous. Oh, don't worry. These are not helpful things to say to people. So, yeah, I mean, if you are a tightly wound person, you know, (laughs) and now (laughs) say something Buddhist, you know, recognize that, observe it in yourself, uh, you know, honor it, and then do your best to just let that go and look at, you know, look at your kid. Your kid is probably doing okay. And, you know, being fluttery and anxious um, isn't necessarily helpful. But then I also think about the um, the whole world of, it was a long time ago for me, but the world of preschool drop-off, when mm. you see the, the combo of the parent who just runs with their kids screaming, the parent who sneaks away, and then the parent who just flutters so much they make their kid more anxious, that there are, uh, you know, I think that there's probably for that one, there's a right answer. And that one is, you know, I love you. You are going to have a good day. There are people here to take care of you. I will see you at two. Um, you know, like, uh, but I, I totally appreciate that we're all getting ordered and pulled in so many different directions at once. And it's very, very hard to feel like you're doing the right thing when somebody is constantly telling you you're doing the wrong thing. Um, speaking of anxiety, you talk about post-Holocaust anxiety in particular. Uh, how do you raise Jewish children in the shadow of you know, thousands of years of persecution without misery and anxiety and fear kind of all around? Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I did want to point out that the Jewish mother stereotype that this book sort of deals with is very much based on a this period that post-war period of Jewish history, where uh, you know the sort of stereotype of a neurotic, clingy mother perhaps had some uh, actual realness behind it. Um, But the book also addresses the fact that as much as some people want to portray Jewish history as this endless stream of persecution, there have been periods uh, of history in Spain, in Egypt, during the Middle Ages, um, when Jews were fairly acculturated, fairly wealthy. It was not that different from America now. Um, so I do get concerned when Jews want to uh, wave this banner of we are the most persecuted people ever in the world. Um, because, uh, 
uh, I think that that can get in the way of looking at the world we live in right now and the social justice actions we need, we should be undertaking right now and encouraging our kids to undertake to help people who maybe are not us who are suffering. Um, and I think coming at the whole world from this perspective of um, we are perpetually a persecuted minority can blind us to opportunities to uh, help other people. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise throughout the world. Um, but raising a child in an atmosphere of fear and constant suspicion, uh, which is different from distrust of authority, which the book goes into, um, is not a healthy way for anybody to live. That makes a lot of sense. And that's very much the, the Judaism that I was raised with the sense of, you know, terrible things have happened and have happened to people like us. And so now when terrible things happen to other people, we should empathize with that. We should, you know, understand those are the people we need to help and not just sort of sit there and go, yeah, man, me too. Amen, amen, amen. So this is your first book under your own name since 1998. Why did you yep. step away from ghostwriting and decide to uh, put your byline on this? Um, I was really, you know, I was interested in writing um, a book that uh, sort of looked at uh, the Jewish mother over time. I love to research. It's my best way of procrastinating when I'm not writing. Um, so getting to sort of delve into a gazillion different texts from a gazillion different time periods was super duper fun. Uh, and also why my book was an entire year late. Uh, but um, I wanted to look at the mother figure and why my, you know, I had some discomfort with the term Jewish mother, which is ridiculous because I am proud to be Jewish. I, you know, have had, had, had columns in two different Jewish publications, but something about Jewish mother made me really, um, footsie, uh, as my own grandmother would say. So, um, I wanted to address sort of why, you know, it, it occurred to me that, um, there's a, a lot of misogyny to the stereotype of the Jewish mother, mm -hmm. that it was a creation of male writers and comedians in that post-war period. Um, and that it was just one more way we could try to make mothers and women feel bad. And so I didn't want to make this sort of, you know, to go back to the sort of the tiger mom thing, not the book itself, but the way it was marketed. I didn't want to be this, do this or your child will turn out, you know, terrible and people from other countries will eat our lunch. And, or like, you know, I, I always, I call the, um, the bringing up baby book in my head, French babies don't get fat, which I know is not the title, <laughs> but I didn't want it to be this thing of fear. You know, I wanted to write a book that was fun to read and sort of celebratory and not, uh, you know, perhaps ironically, not guilt provoking at all. So that was really the motive. And uh, speaking of your side projects, one of them is Sorry Watch, which I love. And I didn't even know you were involved with when I first uh, oh. si signed you up to, to do this interview. So I was really excited to uh, to find that in your bio. Um, how has looking at other people's apologies and analyzing them uh, shaped your parenting when apologizing is one of the most important things we can teach our kids? Good question. 
Um, so my friend Susan McCarthy and I, my co-blogger on Sorry Watch, we like to look at good apologies as well as bad ones because I do feel like we live in a world where everybody is so eager to scream gotcha and everybody loves to, you know, sort of uh, salivate over terrible apologies. Um, but we also wanted to point out some really good ones that it is so hard to admit that you screwed up. So, you know, uh, you know, when your kid is desperately trying to squirm out of, uh, owning, um, you know, owning something bad that they did, uh, you know, look, they're no different from Lance Armstrong, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that it's hard to apologize well when you have to acknowledge that you did something really bad. Um, and it can't be the thing that happened. You have to say the thing that you did. Um, and it can't be mistakes were made. You know, you can't have the passive voice. Um, it can't be, you know, well, you just didn't understand my sense of humor or, oh, well, I was provoked. Uh, an apology has to be this true, a good apology has to be, um, this almost naked kind of, I messed up. I owned it and. I'm sorry, and here's what I'm going to try to do to not make this happen again. And not only does it has, I think that made me more sympathetic to my children's struggles. Um, it's made me sort of, uh, it's been good for me personally to add the here's how I'm not going to do it again. Um, because we screw up as parents all the time too. So I can say to my kid, you know, you're right. I didn't notice that you were, you know, that, you know, you were suffering and, Here's how I'm going to pay more attention. I will, you know, we'll, I'll check in with you after you come in from school. Um, you know, we'll talk about what's bothering you. Um, so I, I feel like there's something everyone can learn from apologies that can, you know, uh, permeate every aspect of our lives. So if there's one takeaway that you'd like parents to have from your book, whether they're Jewish parents or not, mothers or not, um, what, what would you, what would you want to convey most of all? Um, I think, you know, I did make jokes about don't read parenting books in my own parenting book. Um, nobody knew better than Dr. Spock who said, trust yourself, you know, more than you think you do. I think we all have that little spark in us, that little instinct within us that says, um, I kind of know what I have to do here. And if you can just tune in to listening to that. Um, and trust yourself. Um, I think we are all capable of being really good parents. That's beautiful. <laughs> that wasn't very Jewish. I needed to put something in there. Jewish and not. We are all capable. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking with thank Marjorie Engel. And you can find her book, Mama Len Knows Best, in stores right now. Marjorie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rose. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino talks about some hot fall books from independent publishers. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews Director Luisa Armelino is here to tell us all about some of this fall's best books from independent presses. Hi, Luisa. Hi, Rose. Nice to be back. Always nice to have you here. Um, so tell us what's hot in these big indie books of fall. Okay. Well, you know, we absolutely love independent presses. Mm-hmm. And we do this story every year, and it's hard to pick. But one of our correspondents in Boston, the correspondent in Boston, Judith Rosen, goes to bookstores and she talks to people. And then I weigh in and Gabe Habish, the fiction editor, weighs in and we come up with a list. And this year it's, as usual, very exciting. And it's fiction and nonfiction. I'll tell you in person essays by Chloe Caldwell from Emily Books, which is the new imprint from Coffee House. And it's about becoming an adult and the imperfect ways most of us get there. So that looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Chloe is a young woman. Europa, which is a press that started in Italy, in Rome, has been really doing some great books. And the one we picked was Shelter in Place by Alexander Maxik. Comes out in September, and it's forty-five thousand copy first printing, which is pretty That's big substantial. for a small press. The owner of Village Books in Bellingham, Washington State, calls this an incredibly courageous novel that delves into issues of love, gender, violence, and mental illness. And then I also have to mention, since I have a book yes, in here, please, please do um, from tell, Sarah tell Band called Mala Femina about women breaking rules. That's all I'm going to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) But if people wanted to know more about it, they could look at our feature in our uh, Monday's issue this past Monday on the the big indie books of fall, and they could maybe learn a little bit more about your book. Right. And there's also a QA and a with me. Okay. That's enough about me. Soft Skull, Rebecca Kaufman, Another Place You've Never Been, which are linked stories set in Buffalo, New York, following a woman named Tracy from being a 10-year-old girl to a troubled adolescent to a struggling adult, and P.W. starred that book. We also have Zama, translated from the Spanish New York Review Books, which does some amazing things. Antonio Di Benedetto. It's a classic of Argentinian literature that is 50 years old. It's finally been translated. Wow. We stored that as well. I feel like translations are really coming into their own in in some way. I'm just seeing so many more of them coming out, being reviewed, getting attention. It's really nice to see. I think so, and I hope so. I'm going to Korea to a conference, and the subject is Chinese publishing, and I've been looking at books translated from the Chinese, and what was really interesting is there's a lot of science fiction doing there is. very well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, a translated Chinese story, uh, just won the Hugo Award this year, a translated novel last year. Um, it's been quite something. I mean, science fiction has been very big in China for a long time, but yeah. to see it making its way over here, championed by Ken Liu, who's a wonderful translator as well as an author, and uh, some publishers willing to take some chances. It's just, it's doing extremely well. Right. One of them is um, Open Letter Mm -hmm. up in University of Rochester. But we also have a graphic novel that we're very excited about. It's done by Fantagraphics. Is that Mm -hmm. how you pronounce it? My favorite thing is Monsters, Emil Ferris. And it has the most amazing drawings in it. It's a story about 1960s working class Chicago 
where a 10-year-old tries to solve the murder of her upstairs neighbor in a graphic diary. It's really, as our comics editor Calvin Reed says, awesome. And Grove has Christadora by Tim Murphy about an iconic building in Manhattan's East Village, which moves from the Tompkins Square riots to the AIDS epidemic in 1980s. And Paul Yamazaki, who's the head buyer at City Lights, who's always our go-to for recommendations, calls it the best novel I've read about the cost of activism. Hmm. And another one by Grey Wolf is um, about fertility, which is a big issue today. The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Medicine, and Motherhood by Bell Boggs. And that's a 25,000 copy first printing. And it's essential reading for those interested in what an essay today can do. She talks about the clinical and the personal and the hope and the transformation of trying to have a child. It sounds very powerful. Want some more? Sure, bring okay. it on. Uh, translated from the Spanish is Lila Jufresa. Umani is the name of it. It was listed by PW as an international hot property. And it takes place in Mexico City. Again, a 12-year-old seems like there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of children young, in younger these independent <laughs> And a lot of understanding of the complexities of childhood. I, th- I think we're, we're done with the, the naive, wide-eyed, innocent. And we're, we're really getting into what it's like to be in that, that tween space, you know, the 10, 11, 12, where you're starting to understand what's going on in the world and you don't necessarily like it. Yes. And of course, children are growing up so much faster. And it's interesting to read books about children in different cultures growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, This is about a precocious 12-year-old who reads Agatha Christie to forget the mysterious death of her own sister. And she plants a milpa, which is a crop growing system common in the Yucatan. And as she does this, all the neighbors join in and stories come out of the garden. Hmm. So it's kind of an interesting thing. That sounds really neat. And New Directions has The Last Wolf and Herman, which is translated from the Hungarian. And should I really attempt to say this name? Laszlo Kranzna. Horkai. Not too bad. And it's two novellas. He recently won the Man Booker International Prize. And they're short, and we call them jewels. And they're an existential inquiry into the human animal by a unique and ingenious writer, says our start review. Well, that sounds like quite a crop of books. Um, very exciting. And uh, it would be great to to see how they all do as they emerge over the course of the fall. What was the um, the date range? These are August, September, October, November? Uh, July to January, I think. So nice, yeah. nice big range. Yeah. And a nice mix of people and nationalities and topics. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Louisa. It's thank always you. great to have you on the show. Okay. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Gretchen Bakke author of The Grid, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delectable author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. 
In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 